Our story begins in the Porphyrian Desert, lost among the maps of time, seven days' journey from the nearest sign of civilization. We find Abapal, an old monk tending his small garden and date palms, quiet at work, weaving baskets, saying his prayers. Alone in the desert, all his needs are taken care of. Everything about Abapal is what you'd expect of an early Christian monastic. But each year, he takes those baskets he so carefully and faithfully weaves, and he burns them. I'm Evan Rosa, and you're listening to The Table Audio podcast about seeking Christian wisdom for life's biggest questions. And in this episode, with an exploration of a vice you've probably never heard of, a devil you don't know that wreaks havoc in contemporary life, maybe even your own. Featuring writer Kathleen Norris and theologian Jerry Sitzer. So back to Abba Paul the pyromaniac monk who makes his baskets just to burn them. Obviously, very strange behavior, perhaps for any age. But why? John Cashin, an early biographer of Christian history, delivers this story to us from book 10 of his Institutes, his theological catalog of desert spirituality. He describes Paul's practice as a victory, saying... He performed it simply for the sake of purifying his heart and strengthening his thoughts and persisting in his cell. Still, why though? Destroying one's work? Over and over? It sounds more like the myth of Sisyphus than a bountiful Christian habit. Weave, burn, rinse, repeat. Sounds more like hell. Well, maybe one reason we don't understand the prescription is that we don't understand the diagnosis. If you don't know what's wrong with you, any treatments seem strange and pointless. The answer to Abba Paul's practice lies in a lost word for a deadly vice, actually removed from the dictionary at one point, considered obsolete or effete, ineffectual, marking nothing as if we can erase a vice by eliminating the word for it. That vice is Acadia, sometimes pronounced Acedia or Acadia, literally not caring in the Greek. All right, so that's where we're headed. What is Acadia? What does it have to do with me? What can I learn from our hero, Abba Paul? Well, before you go and burn all your baskets, I suggest we rewind a little bit to get some context for the theological and practical goals of Christian monasticism. And for that, we need Jerry Sitzer, professor of theology at Whitworth University, specializing in the history of Christianity and Christian monastic spirituality. He's an expert on what you might call John Cashin's monastic journalism. Right now, uh, I'm studying a John Cashian, very unusual and interesting figure. I mean, he was kind of um, um, a, a, one of these well-connected, we'd say today, networked people in the ancient world. Grew up in the Baltic area, um, fell in love early on with the stories of the early desert fathers and mothers and with his friend Germanus. He eventually went to Bethlehem, stayed there for a while, grew disillusioned because it was a little soft and eventually made his way down to Egypt where he met the, the stars of the desert in the later part of the fourth century. 
interviewed them, traveled around, learned as much as he could, eventually was forced out of Egypt, too long a story to tell, made his way to Constantinople, where he was ordained a deacon, came to know John Chrysostom, went to Rome, maybe Antioch, eventually ended up in Gaul. So this guy's really well-traveled. And one of the bishops in Gaul asked him to write a report and to reflect on all that he learned in Egypt. And so he wrote two books, The Institutes and The Conferences. In The Institutes, he outlines in detail and reflects on the wisdom of the idea of the eight deadly thoughts or vices. Reading these things is like feeling you're being filleted alive. I mean, honestly, they are so psychologically insightful. His reflections on gluttony or avarice or sadness. Yes, sadness is one of the eight deadly thoughts or vices, and of course, pride and so on. And I love to teach these things because they give us a kind of diagnostic tool to understand human nature at its worst and to see it redeemed by the work of Christ. And he also tells some great stories in those books too. Just one of those many stories is the story of Abba Paul. And we will unravel that spiritual puzzle in a few minutes. But for now, note what Sitzer says about diagnostic tools. Because they give us a kind of diagnostic tool to understand human nature at its worst and to see it redeemed by the work of Christ. This is in many ways psychological language. It's thinking about the patterns of human thoughts and behaviors, diagnosing our spiritual pathologies, and designing treatment protocols for flourishing despite the onslaught of temptation to vice and failure. Kathleen Norris thinks of these desert mothers and fathers that John Cashin presents as the first psychologists. Norris is the author of many books, including The Cloister Walk, Amazing Grace, A Vocabulary of Faith, and Dakota, A Spiritual Geography. These first psychologists would include Evagrius of Pontus, aka Evagrius the Solitary, a fourth century monk who was one of Cashin's teachers. Evagrius was the first to formalize a list of the eight, yes, that's eight, not seven, deadly thoughts, also more affectionately known as the eight terrible temptations or eight evil thoughts. Evagrius formulated this list as a way of thinking about the temptations, which you might think of as the ideas or suggestions towards sin, but not the sinning itself. The temptations from which sinful, immoral, damaging behavior flows. It's in this sense that Evagrius and the other early Amas and Abbas of the desert are psychologists. Well, the research I did, I really am convinced now that Evagrius and some of these early monks, fourth century Christian monks, are really the first psychologists of the West. That they, when they talk about the seven bad, eight bad thoughts that plague us and the, and the eight virtues that help us deal with our bad thoughts, um, a lot of what they say really resonates with modern psychology. In fact, um, I, I heard from a lot of psychologists and psychiatrists on my book tour, people calling in to radio talk shows saying, you know, what Evagrius is talking about, thinking about your thoughts, that's exactly what we do in uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, a new therapy. But he was talking about this in, in the seventh century, I mean, 1,700 years ago. So I really was... was uh, delighted to find all of that in the fourth century, this great wisdom uh, about the, the bad thoughts that come to all of us. Uh, they never, the, those early monks never used the word sin, which I think is very useful because everybody has the bad thoughts and the temptations. So there's not really guilt associated with that. Everyone experiences anger 
envy, pride, acedia, I think. Uh, and for these early monks, acedia, anger, acedia, and pride were the three really, really dangerous ones. Well, everybody experiences that. There's no guilt associated with it. Where the problems come in is how we respond to them. If we give in to our anger, if, if we behave badly because we're being plagued by these bad thoughts, then the moral issues come in. Then you've got um, you know, other problems. But the temptations, the bad thoughts come to everyone. So using the word bad thoughts instead of sin, I think, is, is really quite useful. And so they, you know, here they were in the fourth century, um, really delineated all of this. These monks were examining the subtleties of trying to live the Christian way, trying to follow the pattern and example of Jesus, who was tempted in all ways, yet without sin, thinking psychologically about vice, moral or spiritual failure, means getting to the roots of the problems, finding patterns and habits of life to resist temptations with the aid of the Holy Spirit, and thereby become more like Jesus. If you're familiar with virtue ethics, it's a fake it till you make it kind of thing. Now, we could go lots of directions from here. There are eight deadly thoughts that can infect the mind and cause us to sin in a multiplicity of ways. What are those original eight deadly vices? The list, Cashin translated into Latin from Vagrius, was gluttony, lust, avarice or greed, superbia or pride, despair or sadness, anger or wrath, vainglory, and Acadia. These eight deadly, terrible thoughts became the seven deadly sins in the 6th century, when Pope Gregory the Great wanted to consolidate and develop the list in order to respond to the spiritual needs and pathologies of Christians at that time. So vainglory and superbia are combined into pride. Envy is added to the list. But we want to hone in on just one that was removed and forgotten, Acadia. Despair or sadness... And Acadia were often confused, thought irrelevant to life outside the monastery, and used interchangeably. So they were combined and renamed as sloth. Dante Alighieri thought of each of these deadly sins as corruptions, or deprivations, or negations of love. Four of them deal explicitly with the corruption of the mind, vainglory, sorrow, pride, and Acadia. Which is perhaps what makes it possible to see these exercises as psychology, which exists at least in part, to heal corruptions of the mind or mental illness. So what's the point of this listing of vices and the examination of temptations? Evagrius himself was worried about too much theorizing about temptation and sin because of the way it can introduce bad thoughts to otherwise innocent minds. I'm sure there are many reasons, and I won't list them all, but giving temptations and vices a name has a way of helping us respond. The eight vices are presented as spirits or demons in Cashin's Institutes. There is a meaning found in naming the enemy or attacker or diagnosing an illness. Until you know what plagues you, it can be hard to formulate a resistance or treatment plan. It looks like the same goal is active in the modern spiritual classic of C.S. Lewis, The Screwtape Letters. That book was conceived by Lewis during a particularly boring sermon one Sunday. He wrote to his brother Warren that night. Before the service was over, one could wish these things came more seasonably. I was struck by an idea for a book, which I think would be both useful and entertaining. It would be called As One Devil to Another, and would consist of letters from an elderly retired devil to a young devil who just started to work on his first, quote, patient. The idea would be to give the psychology of temptation from the other point of view. 
Naming these temptations and vices allow us to formulate a strategy for responding. It's about knowing your enemy and knowing your own weaknesses. It brings a whole new meaning to better the devil you know than the devil you don't. When Gregory the Great consolidated the list, it was seen as a good thing. It allowed Christians of the time to focus on the most problematic of temptations and try to root them out. But as a result, Acadia was taken off the list and hidden away. It didn't seem to apply beyond the solitary individual lives of monks who were constantly tempted to abandon their cells, abandon their monasteries, and simply give up on the life that they were called to. But as we'll see in a minute, that was a mistake. More on what Acadia actually is, why it's called the Noonday Demon, and how that demon prowled unnamed and unknown for the last 1,500 years into your life today. In just a moment. For more from The Table and Biola University's Center for Christian Thought, check out our website at cct.biola.edu. You can sign up for our regular email journal, get access to hundreds of free resources like ebooks, short and long form articles, thought pieces, all sorts of videos. Everything we do features Christian perspectives on the big questions. For example, you can find video interviews like our one with philosopher Nicholas Wolterstorff on justice and love, or another one, theologian Stanley Hauerwas on suffering. Cornell West and Robert George on how to disagree with civility and humility. Psychologist Robert Emmons on the proven effects of gratitude for human flourishing. For these resources and many more, visit cct.biola.edu. Now back to the show. We've developed a lot of questions so far. What is the usefulness of a psychology of sin and temptation? Why go from eight terrible thoughts to seven deadly sins? Why take Acadia off that list? And what in the world was Abba Paul doing burning his baskets? It's not exactly a helpful productivity tip or life hack. Patience, dear friends, patience. First, back to Kathleen Norris on the significance of Acadia and the consequences of having lost it. The fact that they ranked Acadia up there with anger and pride really struck me. They understood how deadly it was. And then, unfortunately, about a couple hundred years later, in the 6th century, when the, the seven deadly sins became the church doctrine, really, uh, Gregory the Great sort of talked about them, Acadia got dropped. It sort of was stuck into the sin of sloth, physical laziness. And that whole powerful, uh, deadly force that it had, the notion of that was, was pretty much lost to Western culture. And I thought that was really um, a shame. And that's one of the reasons I wrote the book was to talk about it again, because I really do think we need to understand um, Acedia's effect on us. Like I use the image of a fairy tale. If, you, if you're suffering from something and don't know the name of it, of the demon you're suffering from, you're in a bad way. The book she's talking about is 2008's Acadia and Me, A Marriage, Monks, and a Writer's Life. It's a theological memoir that reintroduces and names this vice back into the lexicon of Christian spirituality. And the argument that she makes throughout the book is that Acadia is just as relevant to us today as it ever was in the monastery. It afflicts us solitary individualistic moderns in a particularly bad way because we're haunted by a demon without a name, 
a condition and a temptation to spiritual discouragement and loss of meaning. The word actually was marked as obsolete in the Oxford English Dictionary in like the 30s. And then when they brought a supplement out after World War II, the word was back in. And I don't think that's happened to a lot of words where it's marked obsolete. It, you know, we don't need it anymore. It's not, not in use. And then after World War II, uh, it was back in. And I, that's one of the reasons I wrote the book, because I wanted to explore the reasons why do we need this ancient word again um, after the trauma that the whole world went through during World War II. Um, and then the, what I think of as the trauma of sort of the military-industrial complex, the whole consumer economy, all of that has taken its toll as well. And all these products that are supposed to make our lives easier um, and we're supposed to be more carefree. Instead, we're burdened by lots of anxiety. We take you know, drugs to lift our mood, to help us sleep at night. The problems uh, haven't gone away. Acedia hasn't gone away. It's there in us and in our culture. Boredom. You know, we do so many things to escape boredom. And um, I think the early monks would tell us, hey, just face it head on. That's the only way you can deal with it. Video games, television, all kinds of things, you know, overuse of the internet. I mean, and I think human beings are good at, at finding almost any way to escape their responsibilities, their true selves, uh, the fear of being alone, all of those things. There are so many things we can do. We can take drugs. We can have a couple cocktails every night that kind of take the edge off, help us escape um, that feeling that, you know, that feeling of solitude, um, of being responsible for our own selves, our own lives. All, there's so many things that can distract us from that. And I guess that was really the point of that whole monastic movement in the fourth century. And it's still in some ways the point of monastic life is you come to terms with who you really are. The masks get dropped. You, you, you reduce your distractions. So you're forced to come to be alone with God, I think, is one of the ways that monastic people have always talked about it. You're alone with God. You have the scriptures maybe by heart because then they're inside you and the words will come to you, but you're basically alone with God. And I guess for most of us, that's a scary proposition. We don't really want to be alone with ourselves, let alone, you know, uh, be alone with God. Acadia, Norris thinks, is an important tool for diagnosing contemporary technological life. A life wherein we're constantly alone together. Where solitude and silence are uncomfortable. Where we constantly dream and envision a life other than the one that we have. Those ancient monks felt Acadia when they were tempted to leave the discomfort of their spiritual calling, abandoning their vocation. We modern monks feel Acadia when we put off the tasks we've been given to, just to check in on social media, voyeuristically looking longingly at the lives we wish we had. And of course, those people with the good lives you want, they're just dreaming of someone else's situation. Acadia distracts us from the task of being a responsible, loving individual before God, worthy of the work and projects God calls us to in faith and work. If we are in fact hassled and tempted by Acadia to give in to meaninglessness and reject our spiritual calling, then we'd be wise to listen to the monks who battled that vice in the 4th century and referred to Acadia as the noonday demon. So here are Kathleen and Jerry Sitzer again 
talking about the definition of Acadia. How should we understand this spiritual vice? The Greek word Acadia just means not caring, and, and, and it, it's come to mean as really seriously not caring to the extent that you no longer care that you care. And I, I describe it as kind of a spiritual morphing. If you really give into it, it becomes this numbing um, uh, effect on your life. And I think just knowing the name of what it is, um, it's not depression, it's not just sadness, it's not just boredom and restlessness, but all those things are part of it. But just knowing the name of it, and when it strikes, it seems to come out of nowhere. Like if I'm depressed, I usually know why, that something really bad has happened, and I'm, of course I'm a little bit depressed, and I'll, I'll, I'll work through that. Like if someone has died or, or you know, uh, a bad thing has happened. With the CD, it can come out of nowhere, but at least now I recognize it, and I say, oh, you again, okay. Well, I'm not going to give in. It was, you know, depression is an illness, whereas acedia is a temptation. And because it's a temptation, it can be resisted. You can struggle against it and win. Whereas if you're seriously depressed, you probably need medication. You need a, psych a psychiatrist or psychologist to work with you on it. Uh, with acedia, uh, it is a temptation. You can resist it once you know what it is and you recognize it. Again, here's Jerry Sitzer, who thinks Acadia is best translated um, impatience with routine, boredom, listlessness, a, uh, the desi a, right? a desire for a shortcut. That's really what it implies. That's why they call it the noonday demon. You know, by, by the time noon hits when you're living in a monastery and you've prayed for the fourth or fifth time of the day, you look outside and the sun has basically stopped moving. You look at the clock and it stopped ticking. You know, when you think about the desert, you might have a little bit of cool in the morning and you'd get up and you'd say your prayers and you'd uh, maybe water your vegetables, whatever you, you, know, you were doing. But by the noon of the day, the desert heat is really pressing down on you and it's going to affect your mood. You're going to feel more oppressed at noon than you will say at six in the morning or maybe five in the afternoon when you have the luxury, you can watch the sun go down and, and know that the night will be a little cooler. But in the noonday demon, the, noon, the noonday desert heat is, is very oppressive. And I think that's when they noticed. I mean, they were a very good, these early monks were very good observers of them, their own lives uh, because they had very few distractions. So they would notice, well, this particular temptation, this bad thought tends to come at that hour. And there's also Psalm 91 that talks about the scourge that lays waste at noon, because they knew the Psalms by heart, most of them. So that was another way that they identified the noonday demon. And you feel overcome. Athletes experience Akedia when they've gone through drills again and again and again, they feel like they're not making any improvement and they grow bored with them and restless or musicians or scholars. Th that particular deadly vice or thought applies to those who want to figure out how to take a shortcut to excellence mm. yeah. or to flee. In fact, Cassian talks about the desire to flee the place, he says. Oh, he says, if, uh, uh, put, putting words into, the, in, into an imaginary monk, if only I could find a better abbot. If only I could find a better monastery, if only I could find a better coach, a better teacher, a better set of circumstances that would simply make the Christian life easier for me and more convenient, and I could get, I could get to excellence uh, somehow more quickly. That's really what he's referring to. And I mean, though, and that, that syndrome, the if-only syndrome, 
is just like rampant it is our society it's a it's a habit of our society so acadia isn't depression neither is it sadness remember there was some confusion about despair and acadia and that they were both mingled into sloth by pope gregory the great sadness on the other hand uh, would best be translated um, at at the at the lighter side of things, self pity, and at the harder side of things, despair. Mm-hmm. Uh, where where you uh, face circumstances, experience in life that are simply so hard, and you fall into a deep kind of sadness. It's not depression. I I hesitate to use modern words and apply them easily to ancient wisdom. That that takes some nuancing. That I'm hesitant to do. Here's what Evagrius of Pontus has to say about Acadia. First of all, the demon of Acadia makes it appear that the sun moves slowly or not at all, and that the day seems to be 50 hours long. Then he compels the monk to look constantly toward the windows, to jump out of the cell, to watch the sun, to see how far it is from the ninth hour, to look this way and that, And further, he instills in him a dislike for the place and for his state of life itself. A dislike for manual labor, and also the idea that love has disappeared from among the brothers and there is no one to console him. And if there is someone who has offended the monk, this too the demon uses to further add to his dislike of the place. He leads him on to the desire for other places where he can easily find the wherewithal to meet his needs and pursue a trade that is easier, more productive. He adds that pleasing the Lord is not a question of being in a particular place, and he deploys every device in order to have the monk leave his cell and flee the stadium. Calvin College philosopher Rebecca Conondike de Young, in an essay covering sloth and Acadia, in fact, we published this essay online in the Table Journal not long ago, she suggests that, quote, the counsel of the desert is this, Stay in your cell, and your cell will teach you everything. Similarly, Blaise Pascal, from his Pensee, or Thoughts, particularly the section on diversion, admits, I have often said that the sole cause of man's unhappiness is that he does not know how to stay quietly in his room. Acadia tempts you to leave your station. It tempts you to sleep or disengage. It tempts you to fill your life with noise, whether that's TV or social media or... Um, my voice, this podcast, hopefully not. It's the opposite of mindful fulfilling of your responsibility, come what may. It leads to restlessness and instability. A 2014 article published in Science Magazine presents findings from 11 studies that subjects would rather administer mild electric shocks to themselves rather than sit alone in an empty room for just 15 minutes. That's, um, well, I beg your pardon, but that's shocking. All dumb jokes aside, and I'm sorry about that, think about the ways in which our consumption habits and daily practices imply that we all demand to be entertained, almost constantly. Aldous Huxley once wrote a short essay on Acadia. He's the author of Brave New World. He thinks of it as a quintessentially modern vice. He writes, Other epics have witnessed disasters have had to suffer disillusionment. But in no century have the disillusionments followed on one another's heels with such intermittent rapidity as in the 20th, for the good reason that in no century has a change been so rapid and so profound. 
the mal du siècle, and that means world weariness, or in French, literally sickness of the century, was an inevitable evil. Indeed, we can claim with a certain pride that we have had a right to our Acadia. With us, it's not a sin or disease of the hypochondrias. It's a state of mind which fate has forced upon us. In many ways, we are still stuck with boredom or ennui as the ultimate form of despair. To be alone with our thoughts and to face ourselves is far too frightening. My friend Matthew Smith, a professor of literature at Azusa Pacific University, pointed out to me this spot-on expression of Acadia by the French poet Charles Baudelaire, a decadent poet of the 19th century post-romantic period. Here's Matt reading the final stanzas of To the Reader from Baudelaire's volume, The Flowers of Evil. Take it away, Matt. In each man's foul menagerie of sin, there's one more damned than all. He never gambles, nor crawls, nor roars, but from the rest withdrawn, gladly of this whole earth would make a shambles and swallow up existence with a yawn. Boredom. He smokes his hookah while he dreams of gibbets, weeping tears he cannot smother. You know this dainty monster, too, it seems. Hypocrite reader, you, my twin, my brother. Does Baudelaire mean what he says, or is he just being ironic? Does he, is he celebrating boredom, or is he lamenting it? I think Baudelaire is implicating the reader in this ennui that he sees in the city. The poem is called O Lecteur, and it begins with the visual landscape of Paris. Prostitution, crime, disease, addiction, damnation. And then in the end, when the reader might expect him to take a step back, maybe like Shelley or Wordsworth, to give an experience of the sublime and poetry that transcends these material conditions, he refuses to. He sinks or as he might say, slinks into boredom, ennui, and implicates the reader, his hypocrite brother, his twin. What strikes me about this poem is the depiction of a boredom that overcomes the soul and its purpose so completely, a vice more damned than all, that it would rather see the world in shambles than lift a finger. To swallow up existence with a yawn? The subversion is slow and quiet, a sleepy and yet total destruction. That's modern indifference. So what can we say about this then? We need to consider the everyday, the mundane, the quotidian, facing our most simple and repetitive tasks with faithfulness. I asked Kathleen about how we can find God in the quotidian. You know, God is not just there for us on Sunday mornings. God is part of our lives 24-7. And I wrote the book, The Quotidian Mysteries, partly to sort of explore that because our lives are lived in the daily. So, of course, God is there. Um, And the struggles that we have um, with ourselves, with our responsibilities, with other people, it's all worked out in the daily. So daily life is where it's at. I mean, that is where we live and that's where our our struggles are with the bad thoughts and... and, um, you talk in the book about um, the, 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 the helpfulness of repetition and routine. Um, yes, so I learned about that. that. I learned about that in monasteries because, you know, going to spend nine months in a monastery, going to, going to church four times a day, 
um, you begin to realize that it's a scaffold that supports the rest of your life. That repetition, it can seem really boring sometimes, and every monk I know talks about hit like a runner hitting the wall. You think, oh my gosh, I have to go to back to church again. I can't stand this. But when you get into that routine, you realize it's a scaffold. And I think even going to week to weekly church on Sunday can be a scaffold for your life. But in a monastery, what I discovered was because there are these set times for prayer and all of this repetition going on, because there are set times for prayer, you use the times for recreation well. You, you, it, it gives you the license to kind of use your other time more constructively. Um, it's a very interesting phenomenon, but repetition is at the heart of it, that you keep going back to church, reciting the psalms. And of course, in a monastery, you're going to recite the same 150 psalms about every, you get through the cycle about once a month. So if you're in a monastery for, for 10 years or 50 years, pretty much you do know the psalms by heart. Um, and that's a beautiful thing, because you can be walking down the street and suddenly a line from a psalm will come to you when you need it. Um, it's like a portable Bible. And I think now we're in a position to see what's going on with Abba Paul. He's remaining faithful in the small things. What looks like fruitless tedium from the outside is really a spiritual victory once you're familiar with Acadia. I like the way Kathleen tells the story of Abba Paul, and that's how she starts her book, Acadia and Me. So here's how she explains his behavior. Abba Paul was a 4th century monk, I believe in Egypt, maybe Syria. And he lived a little more isolated than most monks. In that those days, monks would weave baskets and then take them to the cities to sell them. And that is how they bought a little bit of subsistence, you know, things that they would need, staples they would need. Uh, otherwise, they grew their own food. Um, but Paul lived too far away from the cities to make it profitable. You know, he would spend more in traveling than it, he would get for the baskets. So he really did live on his garden and everything. But he, because prayer and work were closely linked, that you would pray the psalms as you were weaving the baskets. It was part, weaving the baskets was part of his prayer life. So he would weave his baskets as if he were going to sell them. And then at the end of a year, um, he would burn them all, and then start over again. And Cassian tells that story of Abba Paul because he said Abba Paul is the person who basically conquered the demon of Asidia. So that's why he tells the story, because if someone can do that, make something, build something, and then just destroy it and start over again quite calmly without regret, then he's conquered this demon of Asidia. Paul's practice of weaving keeps him focused on simple labor, not unlike the dishwashing of Brother Lawrence in his devotional classic, The Practice of the Presence of God. Establishing a practice and rule of life allows him to remain stable, unflagged by the noonday demon. Paul finds rest in the weaving. He finds rest even in the restlessness. The threat of solitary life built around a fear of missing out on something built around the anxiety of made-up consumer needs, Paul slaps boredom in the face with a pattern of life that facilitates his spiritual goals, which of course is his vocation. And it's ours too. There are lessons to learn about staying the course, resisting the temptation to sleep off our boredom and despair, and lean into our present situation as an act of long obedience toward God and faithfulness and loyalty to the people around us. The truth is, 
There are many practical suggestions and advice surrounding treatment for an Acadia diagnosis. Norse's book, Acadia and Me, includes a treasure chest full of reflections, many her own, on what ought to be done to combat this ancient vice revisited. As one prone to Acadia myself, but perhaps no more than the average suburban American, I am not fit to advise. But as one looking for practices myself, I'll call to note some of the ancient practices made present and some things that might seem to work for me. First, tears. The desert mother Ama Sincletica suggests weeping. And there's nothing sentimental about this, though. It's just about grief. Acadia threatens to take away your ability to grieve about things that matter, your own actions and character, the suffering and weakness of your neighbors. She recommends this kind of grieving as a means to retain your sense of purpose in spiritual formation. Second, work. Evagrius suggests to monks battling Acadia that they simply endure. Endurance to perform one's tasks, menial though they may seem, gives you a pattern for living. Against the doom and meaninglessness Acadia tempts us with, we do the dishes, we keep our rooms clean, we send that email, we reconcile that budget, we brush our teeth, we change that seventh diaper today, we hang the laundry. Kathleen Norris ends her book this way with a short poem of her own. I empty the washer and gather what I need for the return, the basket of wet clothes, the bag of clothespins, a worn spring jacket in need of mending. Then I head upstairs, singing an old hymn. And that's the third thing. Invest or inspire love in your work. Etymologically, that would just mean clothing or breathing into. When you invest or inspire, you instrumentalize the tasks. You take them as little bursts of delight. You sing into them. You pray into them. You weave a basket full of psalms, and then you can offer a burnt sacrifice of your work to the one who gave it to you. Invest into your tasks your care, and thereby your love, and thereby find a reason for your work. It's yours, given to you by God. Avagrius says, you know, once you've contended with Asidia, you really experience a deep peace that, that is, is deeper than, than most anything else you'll ever find because you've, you've come through that really bad time of thinking everything is meaningless, nothing matters at all, and then you pull through. If you can get through to that, uh, basically, he thinks the opposite of acedia is really love, that you, you're, you're able to love in a really, really deep way if you've contended with acedia. The opposite of acedia is caring very deeply and it's, and it's loving which I find very liberating. That's it for this episode. But as I said, you can find a wealth of directions and reflections on Acadia in Norris's book, Acadia and Me, A Marriage, Monks, and a Writer's Life. Table Audio is hosted and edited by me, Evan Rosa, and is produced by the Biola University Center for Christian Thought. 
which is supported by generous grants from the John Templeton Foundation, Templeton Religion Trust, and the Blankenmeyer Foundation, along with people like you. Theme music is by The Brilliance. Special thanks to Kathleen Norris and the Baylor University Institute for Faith and Learning for facilitating that interview. Thanks also to Jerry Sitzer and to Matt Smith for his lessons in French pronunciation. To subscribe to The Table Audio, check us out on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search The Table Audio. You can follow me on Twitter at Evan Subrosa, and you can follow the Center for Christian Thought at Biola CCT or visit cct.biola.edu. 